Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. On today's Accent of Women, we look at the refugee crisis in Rakhine State, Burma or Myanmar, and the military junta's attempts there to exterminate the Rohingya ethnic minority. At least 500,000 Rohingya have fled to neighbouring Bangladesh since August of this year. Officially, Burma's government does not recognise the Rohingya as lawful citizens. The government claims they were brought to Rakhine from Bangladesh during the time when Burma was a British colony. And the government says they're living in Burma illegally. But there are other factors too that lie behind the brutal genocide of the Rohingya. Economic considerations, access to natural resources, as well as the broader global context of warfare and anti-Muslim sentiment. To discuss the Rohingya refugee crisis and the genocide, I speak with two media makers and activists in Asia, in the receiving countries for Rohingya refugees. Both of these activists have spent time in the Rohingya refugee camps and are active in the struggle against the violence, oppression and genocide of the Rohingya people. On today's show, you'll be hearing from Parsa Sanjana Sajid, who's a writer, editor and researcher in Bangladesh. She teaches at the Independent University Bangladesh and edits Fragments magazine. Also, Mahi Ramakrishnan, who is a documentary and filmmaker in Malaysia, who's been covering the Rohingya crisis for many years and has made three documentaries about the issue. First up, Parsa Sanjana Sajid. I would say the crisis was created by the state of Myanmar uh, as soon as they stripped the Rohingyas of their citizenship and any other rights they had uh, when they stripped the citizenship. Um, The Rohingya population was made stateless and targeted for expulsion and systematic violence, uh, which obviously made them see Myanmar. And also it's now been very, very well documented that uh, in addition to forced expulsion, that the military carried out systematic campaigns of violence against against them, uh, which now, after this latest crisis, the UN is calling it, um, quote-unquote, textbook example of ethnic cleansing. I would call it a genocide, going by the general definition of the word, but I am also aware that the politics of what is and isn't a genocide is um, rather murky. Clearly, the the Burmese military is interested in either extinguishing or forcing out of the country all of the Rohingya. Why mm-hmm. why is that the case? Why won't the Burmese government or the Burmese um, military grant citizenship to the Rohingya? Why won't they grant? I mean, as far as the Burmese government is concerned, they wouldn't recognize. Because for them, the Rohingyas are Bengalis, right, and migrants from Bangladesh. So I don't think it's a matter of can't. I think it's a matter of want that they just don't recognize the Rohingya population as um, uh, an ethnic group within Myanmar. They refuse to even recognize the term and terms the Rohingya population, who are self-identified as Rohingyas as Bengalis. Um, But I would also like to add that I think there is also widespread support among the population for this um, state insistence that they are Bengalis. On the other hand, uh, these divisions, this labeling of who is and isn't a Rohingya, 
were largely created and fomented by the successive uh, Myanmar ruling class, namely the military. Mahi Ramakrishna adds these thoughts to the origins and genesis of the Rohingya crisis. Actually, a lot of people tend to look at this conflict as a religious conflict, Buddhists against the Muslims. And now currently there's been this issue of uh, pitting the Hindus against the Muslims. But if you really go deeper and do some investigation, you'll find out that Arakan in itself is a place, a state which is uh, rich with natural resources. Like other parts of Burma are rich with gemstones, for example. Arakan is a great place for fishing, has got gas. And recently, um, it has, uh, in 2014, if I'm not mistaken, the military found out that the beaches of Mongdo has got a black soil, which is rich with titanium and aluminium. So what is essentially happening in Burma is genocide against the Rohingya because the military wants to make sure that the entire population of the Rohingya are chased out of the state in whichever manner possible so that it has full um, full and unrestricted access to the natural resources and also the land. If you look at uh, Burma's history, you'll know that there are hundreds of thousands of land grab cases in Burma, amounting to three to five million acres of land which has been grabbed. And uh, this is sold to investors and investors are given even government loans while the smallholders get nothing. So this is a history of persecution to make sure that the military stays in control of logistics of resources, and that it it stays rich and powerful. It's not a surprise that the basis of the conflict lies in uh, capitalism or some kind of profit grab by the government, by the military, by those with inter- interests in those profits. But you are right at the same time that this debate is being cast as either a religious or a cultural debate, that the um, Rohingya are being persecuted because of their Islamic religion, because of their different ethnicity or arguably different ethnicity from the rest of Burma. How is that idea maintained given that Burmese is so, Burma sorry, is so multicultural? See, if you really look at, uh, I mean, now we are all so focused on the Rohingya issue, but the history of persecution is more than three decades old. And it's not just the Rohingya who have been persecuted. The Rohingya, there is a small group of Hindu Rohingya who have also been persecuted. And the Kachin, the Chin, the Karen. I was in Burma in 2013 and I heard lots of stories about how the military will be driving past a Kachin village only to see a very pretty girl, It'll, the military will stop its uh, will stop, and will just grab the woman, and she's lost forever. She just completely disappears. So this kind of persecution has been going on, and in Burma, even the majority Bamars are poor and discriminated upon. It's not just the Rohingya. In Rakhine State itself, the Rakhine Buddhists remain poor. Arakan is the poorest state in Burma with 78% poverty rate. So now if we look at what's happening in Burma, we see the persecution against the Rohingya because it's so visible. But don't be surprised if after the Rohingya have been chased out of Arakan, 
the, you will also see the military training its weapons against the Rakhine Buddhists. Now, it may not end up in a massacre or the, or the kind of slaughter that we are seeing against the Rohingya, but they will also be driven out of the state because, like I said, the, all the government, all, sorry, all that the military is concerned about is the control of the natural resources. So Burma's military has systematically persecuted against all its ethnic groups for more than three decades now. The only people who are rich, who are powerful, and who remain safe are the military, the ruling elite, uh, the rich people, and those who are cronies of these people. Well, I want to go back to the Rohingya, and I do take on board what on board what you're saying that today it's the Rohingya being persecuted but you know if the Burmese military succeeds in sweeping them out of the country entirely there is a new target of that um, military aggression however today they are being targeted and it is it does make headlines so we must talk about it Uh, and you as a, a documentary filmmaker you managed to get into some of the refugee camps in order to make the documentaries and to get beneath the stories. How difficult was it to actually get into the camps? It took me almost a year to get the permission because um, I do know that some uh, journalists and and filmmakers have actually tried and have entered the camps without uh, proper permission, but it is extremely uh, dangerous and it will also um, kind of like not give you that kind of access that you want when you want to film and you want to talk to as many people as possible. So it actually took me close to a year and I had to use a contact in Yangon to lobby for a permission and finally I got it and that's how I ended up going up to Arakan and they allowed me to visit the uh, the internally displaced people's camps for three days. Uh, what I saw there was uh, was terrible because there was a a stark contrast between the IDP camps built for the Rohingya as opposed to the ones built for the Rakhine Buddhists. Now, the Rakhine Buddhist ones were were better structured. They were built on stilts. There was even a school there, but and there was enough uh, facilities, running water. You can get access to water as well. But um, the ones built for the Rohingya were appalling. There were not enough toilets for thousands and thousands of the, the Rohingyas in the IDP camps. There was no running water, so there was lots of disease. There was not enough food, even though World Food Program was operating out of uh, the uh, of, uh, out of Arakan. They weren't able to actually supply enough for the people because of rampant corruption involving state ministers and middlemen. So it was a terrible condition, and you know there was a popular. Uh, notion going around at that time in 2013 where people said that if you really notice you will know that the IDP camps for the Rohingya were built close to the Bay of Bengal because the Burmese government is just hoping that in the event there's another tsunami then it'll wipe them all out and they don't really have to embark on another exercise to find a way to drive them out of Arakan. So on the one hand, the um, Burmese military is hoping that these people die. That is a part of the genocide exercise. But pushing them across the border, where are these people expected to go? See, the thing is that uh, these people now, the only access that they have is to Bangladesh. Because the sea route where they use the sea to come to Thailand and then to Malaysia is shut because of stringent monitoring following the 2015-2016 boat crisis. So it's being monitored by 
not just Malaysia, but also Thailand as well as Indonesia. So the easiest, the quickest way for them to escape the persecution, the butchering, the beheadings and the violence is to actually flee into Bangladesh. So they really have no choice. And I'm sure you have heard news about landmines on the way because it is the tactic used by the Burmese military to ensure that the Rohingya do not even think about coming back, about going back to Burma. So that is the kind of uh, genocide exercise which is being undertaken by the military regime. A lot is being made of Aung San Suu Kyi's silence on the issue, in fact, her acquiescence to what the military is doing. Are you surprised at all by her uh, non-response to the international community about the genocide? See, I, I'm one of those people who grew up uh, you know, like uh, looking at her like as if though she's a she's some kind of a a goddess like uh, you know she truly was a democracy icon um, to me and it was such it such a disappointment when she failed to stand up to the persecution the killings and the genocide against the rohingya but having seen the way she has been responding to the news about the rohingya it came as no surprise that she is continuing her stand but having said that you know, it's also very interesting about how all of us are talking about Aung San Suu Kyi and not General Min, who is the most powerful person in Burma. He is the only person who can actually stop the killings. He is the only person who can tell the military to stop shooting. And yet no one talks about him. And all of us are focused uh, on Aung San Suu Kyi. I'm not saying that what she's doing is right. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be talking about her. I'm just saying that we should also be looking at General Min, who, despite the European Union sanctions still being in place, was given a, a, an, an incredible welcome when he went to Europe last year. He had guards of honor, red carpet treatment, and was also allowed to speak. He had speaking invitations and engagements. Now, this is appalling. It is incredible that countries like Britain has said that, you know, they will stop the training, the military training. And that is incredible. But we really need more countries, more people, more advocates, more human rights people and more people in the UN to actually start talking about the general because he is the most powerful person. Aung San Suu Kyi does not have the constitutional powers to stop the persecution, but General Min has and he's not doing anything about it. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. We've been hearing from Mahi Ramakrishnan, a documentary and filmmaker based in Malaysia, discussing the Rohingya refugee crisis. Earlier, we heard from Parsa Sanjana Sajid about her thoughts on the origins of the crisis. More from Parsa. Just to start off, I would like to stress that the Burmese government has been fighting ethnic tensions um, across the country and there are insurgencies across the country in other regions in Burma too. So it's not that they're only fighting the Rohingyas. Um, so the multicultural, multicultural aspect in the country has always been very restrictive. Who allows, uh, who is uh, allowed to participate is up to and at the behest of the state of Myanmar. Uh, but if we actually think about the region without a border, pre-nation state, I think it becomes a bit easier to understand. So that region, present-day uh, Chittagong, which is now in Bangladesh, and the Rakhine state, which is in Myanmar, which the Rohingyas call home, uh, 
these two regions have had shared cultural, political, economic, social history dating back to at least the 8th century, documented. Um, and I don't want to project a history without tensions and conflict, but uh, be that as it may, it has had an intermingled history where people of the region throughout that history, through intermarriage, uh, have come to share that, uh, that again, shared history. Um, during the British colonial period, we saw uh, another kind of mass migration into that region where people from uh, what India, but I'm calling India as kind of pre-nation state India, so other parts of the Indian subcontinent, greater Bengal, um, also what is now Pakistan, moved to or were taken by the British to work as professionals um, in in the British administration, but also to work as laborers in the plantations. Uh, so in post-independence Burma, uh, along with a nascent nationalist sentiment, uh, there was kind of tensions against the, in, the people from uh, people from communities who had ties to India or communities with Indian origin. And Rohingyas became also kind of labeled as people with Indian origin. Um, or, you know, Bengalis. When independence happened, um, there was, you know, a, a, there was nascent nationalist sentiment in the country, um, this idea to bring the country together. And in that, people from Indian origin, which included the Rohingya population, became a target, that they were actually outsiders and they could not be included in kind of national imaginary or national polity in Burma. Um, so these tensions persisted, um, although there are obviously evidence that Rohingyas participated in elections, in political life, despite of states of violence and expulsion throughout the 60s and 70s. Uh, but the culmination of the tension basically came in 1982 when the citizenship law in Burma basically stripped Rohingyas of any citizenship claims and basically excluded them uh, from participation in any political life, stripped them of any rights. Um, so, but if the British, so going back to the British uh, period, I mean, there were other uh, conflicts in other regions in Myanmar, and the British exploited that. So, if the British exploited the inter ethnic tension um, to pit groups against each other, uh, to rule over, you know, Myanmar and India in post independence Burma, uh, in the in kind of the drive to make a cohesive society, multiculturalism, this idea of multiculturalism became an instrument. Uh, so this idea of citizenship in the country is tied to the idea of national race, which I would say is a very dangerous idea. And um, it's tied to European colonial assumptions about race. Uh, but in the Burmese, all these acts and in the constitution, although they recognize national races, and which excludes or does not include Rohingyas as a national race, uh, don't really explain what constitutes a race. But then again, we also know defining race is, has always been based on pseudoscience. It's always racism. 
so there is this, you know, idea of that, and because of that shared cultural history, because the language that the Rohingyas speak are somewhat uh, similar to the languages spoken in Chittagong, which is again in Bangladesh, there is this uh, idea that they, they must be from there. Uh, although there is also, you know, quite well-documented history of people of in that region dating back to centuries ago. We know that many of the Rohingya refugees are now in Bangladesh. Many of them are seeking to cross that border. In fact, that looks like the last remaining open border um, for the for the Rohingya, for the Burmese Rohingya to cross into. But we've also learned that there are landmines along that border too. So as people are fleeing, they are dying in bombings along the border. Do you know what the conditions are like along the border? What's happening there? Okay, so I was actually down there um, just last week. And the conditions change from week to week and even from day to day. So it's uh, very difficult to you know, say something today and then things will change. But what I can say generally is that the refugees are still streaming in. Even just two or three days ago, there was an incident where a boat carrying refugees across the Naf River capsized, killing several people. Um, so, yes, people are still fleeing, but we do have reports of landmine along the borders, which is basically the now the situation is quite perverse. Is On the one hand, the military would rather uh, see these people expelled from their homelands, but with the latest influx, there has also been evidence. People have come with stories of violence and murder. And it seems that while also, you know, while making sure that these people see somehow the military is reacting in a way that people will also not be allowed to free. Um, But mind you, the border area is very remote and despite all efforts can also be porous. So people are still trying to flee, you know, across the rivers, the forests, and the hills. Uh, when I was down there in Cox's Bazaar, I heard from a woman who had just arrived that the rest of her family is um, in a village uh, called Boli Bazaar in Myanmar, and or near Boli Bazaar in Myanmar. And uh, the military has surrounded and laid siege to that village, and she doesn't know whether there will ever be, you know, um, allowed out or the military will, in fact, kill them all. Well, we know that part of the genocide exercise is to turn non-Rohingya Burmese against the Rohingya. So we have this broader um, discontent among ordinary citizens of the country. How are Bangladeshis responding to the influx of Rohingya refugees? Is there a similar demonisation of the Rohingya? I'm really actually glad that you asked this question. Um, so, and I would also like to add that there has been Rohingyas in Bangladesh, um, in you know, successively throughout the last 20 years. Um, in recent history, the latest, before this latest influx in the 90s, early 90s, there was a huge number of people that came in again due to violence. And um, some of them were repatriated. So we have had Rohingya refugees uh, in Bangladesh for quite some time, even before this latest crisis. Um, 
before the late before this latest influx, um, I would say, and it's my opinion, that the sentiment towards Rohingyas ran from ambivalence to outright dislike. Uh, obviously, there were exceptions. Obviously, there were some groups, people, institutions that were uh, more generous. With the current influx that started uh, recently, there's been a marked change. Uh, people at every level, institutions, individuals, are indeed showing a spirit of generosity. They're helping Rohingyas with relief and aid. But I would like to actually stress that there is an underbelly to that, which is that that spirit of generosity is also shot with an extreme sense of nationalism, uh, which is specifically, it's basically look at how generous we are, look at how we are helping the people in distress. So there's a bit of contingency in that feeling, in that generosity, because it depends on um, the Rohingya population's extreme objection, right? They're extremely victimized. If they were, you know, they actually just moved a bit from extreme victimization, I'm not too sure that we would actually show this sympathy. Um, also, concurrent with humanitarian assistance, and which is not actually covered that frequently in, in the press, our international press, is that we have seen uh, one after another anti-refugee policy and sentiment. Um, in the country. Newspapers, even yesterday, Prothamalu, which is one of the primary Banga newspapers in the country, ran a headline that said the Rohingyas are spreading all over the country. And these types of uh, headlines are quite frequent. And as if uh, the Rohingyas and the refugees are a disease, as if they need to be contained. Uh, there is also widespread support, even among people who are doing humanitarian work, people who are, are coming forward with help, that Rohingyas need to be fenced in, um, they need to be enclosed in the camps, and that we need to restrict their mobility. Um, there has been reports of Rohingyas being picked up from outside the camps and sent to the camps. Uh, the government has issued directives that Rohingyas cannot be issued mobile SIM cards that there will be uh, phones in the camps with which they can call their relatives or whoever, but they won't be allowed to have mobile phones in the country. Um, landlords will not be allowed to rent. Employers uh, won't be allowed to employ Rohingyas. Of course, um, like in any other country, people are doing all of these things, but it means that they're doing it outside of the law, in breach of the law, and that these laws are ultimately immoral. You are listening to Parsa Sanjana Sajid, a writer, editor and researcher in Bangladesh. She teaches at the Independent University, Bangladesh, and edits Fragments magazine. If you want to access Fragments magazine, go to fragmentsmagazine.com. And before her, Mahi Ramakrishnan, a documentary and filmmaker in Malaysia who's been covering the Rohingya crisis for many years. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. 
Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week. Thank you.